Welcome to episode 3 of Mountain Mindset. My name is Andre Manzuk, I'm a mental performance coach, professor of sports science, and the founder of MZK Performance. This week I'm joined by Jeff Yu. Jeff's an emergency room doctor based out of Vancouver, British Columbia, and he's also a sponsored rock climber, having bouldered multiple V11s. During our conversation, Jeff and I chat about how he sustains his motivation for training, the mental skills he uses to prepare for performance, and the parallels between medicine and high-performance climbing. It was an honour to sit down with Jeff and summarise some of the conversations that we have at the crag and at the climbing gym, and allow you all to learn from his experiences like I have. On that note, let's dive right into our conversation. Jeff, thank you for joining us. Hey, how's it going? Okay, start us off here, Jeff. Do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I'm, uh, my name is Jeff Yu. I'm an emergency room physician based out of Vancouver, BC, and I'm also a rock climber. I guess I specialize in bouldering, sport climbing, and I guess like gym rat shenanigans. <laughs> yeah, and, and very motivated on the training side of things too, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love training. I, I just love um, kind of tracking metrics and uh, seeing improvements because um, I do find that, you know, climbing can be a little bit nebulous at times. Like you, you're not really sure if you're improving or not, but training is a, a sure way that you can actually uh, know that, you know, you're getting some gains and kind of progressing as a climber. Fantastic. And then what's something that we might not know about you? Something that you might not know about me, I guess like, not related to climbing. Um, a lot of people know me on social media because uh, I'm a doctor and a climber, but I guess one thing that people might not know about me is um, before I wanted to be a doctor, I wanted to become a veterinarian and was pursuing that as a career and actually wrote the MCAT in preparation for veterinary school. <laughs> um, grew up with a bunch of animals in the house, like dogs, cats, fish, turtles, <laughs> and uh, I just, uh, yeah, I just love animals. I, I have a dog as well. And um, yeah, I wanted to pursue that as a career. And then after I kind of decided that that wasn't the right career choice for me, I decided to kind of change directions, go down the science route, and then ultimately ended up in science, uh, in medicine. Yeah, that's, uh, that's actually something I didn't know about you. I knew you and your partner had a, had a dog, but I didn't know that was uh, kind of a route you... Uh, thought about ahead of time mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> so reflecting on your career to date either in in medicine or in or in climbing are there any standout moments over the years yeah there's been uh multiple standout moments both from the medicine and the climbing side um i guess um from the medicine side um one of the biggest standout moments was moving to Vancouver from uh, Toronto. Um, so I actually grew up in Ontario, um, started climbing was when I was in medical school and I was actually planning to stay in Toronto, um, had kind of all my ducks in a line and was uh, had everything kind of set up to stay in Toronto for a residency uh, to do a specialty program in emergency medicine. Um, and I wasn't really planning to move to Vancouver or even like fly out to Vancouver for an interview. And um, when I was applying to CARMS, it's like this uh, pretty intense residency application process where, you know, programs match, uh, rank their candidates and the candidates rank which programs they want to go to. I was like pretty shocked that I didn't get an interview in Toronto. So I was like, you know, it's like kind of really thrown off and um, definitely like my ego was hit pretty hard and had to go back to the drawing board and Vancouver was always kind of um, a second choice to me. Um, I had been there once before and um, I decided to book a flight out to Vancouver and absolutely fell in love with the city and the program. Um, and after the fact, I actually found out that I didn't get an interview in Toronto because there was like a clerical error where they actually didn't have my CV uploaded to their system. And they actually offered me an interview after the fact. But 
you know, by that point, and I did go to Toronto for that interview, but by that point, I kind of already fell in love with Vancouver. I mean, I went to an interview in Vancouver in mid-February and it was like, I think minus 30 degrees Celsius in Toronto. And when I flew it to Vancouver, it was like plus 14 degrees. There was snow on the mountains and it was absolutely beautiful. And I, I figured, you know, if I actually want to pursue climbing uh, more, you know, intensely, um, Vancouver might be the right city for me to actually pursue both medicine and climbing um, kind of in parallel instead of really just focusing on medicine in Toronto. That sounds really serendipitous as well, how that all played out for you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I was like super stressed at that time. But when I look back in retrospect, it was really, I guess, like, I know it sounds cliche, but it was really a blessing in disguise. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure all of us in Vancouver are glad to have you here. And how long have you been, how long have you been here now? I've lived in Vancouver now for um, just over seven and a half years. Um, and I absolutely love the city. I, I really do feel like um, it suits my personality and um, it just offers so many different opportunities, both from a medicine perspective and career development and also uh, for climbing, since it is a major, uh, probably Canada's biggest climbing hub, um, always being surrounded by uh, super strong athletes and being motivated by them as well and having access to Squamish uh, to climb and project um, is a big bonus. So yeah, I, I think I'm going to be staying in Vancouver for the foreseeable future. And I don't know, who knows, maybe I think I would be pretty happy to live and die here as well you know <laughs> oh well thank you thank you for that summary i feel like I, I learned a lot about you there for sure um so thinking over the years have there been any challenges along the way i know we could have touched on it there and then uh, how did they affect you at the time and maybe how have they affected you now looking back on them i guess to bring things uh closer to climbing, because I know that this is like an athletic performance um, podcast. <laughs> so bring things back to climbing. Um, one of the biggest challenges that I faced as an athlete is um, suffering multiple injuries. So um, just before I turned 30, I ruptured my first A2 pulley in my left index finger uh, on a trip to Bishop. Uh, it was kind of like a, a freak accident. Like, I, I think I was still in this mentality where I was in my 20s and I felt absolutely invincible and I, I went on this trip to Bishop and was climbing. I think it was like my third or fourth day in a row. And I started my session in the happy boulders, um, just feeling absolutely trashed. And after I warmed up, kind of got moving, I was like, oh, okay, I guess I can try some, you know, some other boulders. And I went on this problem called every color you are that has like this deep pocket, um, and you kind of like dyno to another jug, which is like a standard standard bouldering move that um, that isn't like too too intense. Um, and as soon as I, I did that, I think just my tissues were just so fatigued that as soon as I latched that jug, my left index finger just like you could hear the snap and immediately came down, had immediate pain, and that was the trip. I had to fly uh, fly back home directly afterwards. Had uh, a confirmed complete A2 pulley rupture on ultrasound and kind of went through the rehab process. And, you know, like after I rehab from that, um, I, about a year later, I herniated a spinal disc um, and suffered from really bad sciatica for a solid nine months oh. um, and ended up getting two spinal surgeries because all of the conservative management uh, didn't end up helping. Um, kind of rehab from those two spine surgeries. And then a year after that, I ended up rupturing my other A2 pulley in my middle finger. So it was like a series of three years where I just had like really serious injuries. And that was really, really challenging. I mean, like um, climbing is obviously a main source of my identity. And during that time, I just felt like a big turd, you know, um, I had to really kind of learn how to be more responsible as an aging athlete, um, uh, learn more about prehab, learn more about training and um, kind of like be more meticulous about how I actually train and strengthen my fingers to make it more resilient for harder moves. Um, so, 
you know, looking back in retrospect, yeah, I think um, it sucks to get injured. And I really wish I didn't get injured because um, I had to kind of learn things the hard way. But um, yeah, I think overall, I do feel a lot stronger. Like I'm able to crimp harder than I've ever been able to crimp. I just feel like my back has been stronger just because uh, I've been putting so much emphasis on core training. And um, I think at the, as an end result, I have become a much better more well-rounded climber because during that time like I had to really focus on footwork and tension and all these other things that I kind of neglected on because I was just so strong in my upper body. Yeah I'm, I'm curious about your motivations during that time period. Did you feel like your motivation took a hit? Was there anything you did to sustain your motivation through those few years of injuries? Well those injuries happened while I was um in my residency. So, I mean, residency is really, really intense. It's five years of just like grueling medical slave labor, really. Um, and so, uh, when I was injured, um, while I was doing like rehab and trying to get back to my original baselines, um, I kind of was able to shift focus, um, like back to my studies and, uh, you know, really, really hone in on becoming a, a really good physician. I mean, like I was, obviously I was like trying really hard to be a good physician, even when I was climbing as well. But um, I, I do think it was kind of like a forced refocus back onto medicine. Um, and I guess that's the good thing about having like two major identities in uh, separate things, you know, like I think if I was only a climber and I was injured and I wasn't able to climb, I think that would be really, really hard for my ego, um, pretty bad for my psyche as well. Um, but because I do have these two separate identities, you know, if one thing takes a hit, I can kind of just refocus on the other thing and kind of like go back and forth, you know? And how do you find balancing that and going back and forth on a, on almost a daily basis? I'm sure there's so many days that we'll train in the morning and then you work like a full evening shift at the hospital. How do you find that balance? Um, I think work-life balance and also balancing climbing and medicine um, does have its challenges, but it also has its advantages. Um, as you know, I work only evening shifts. Um, and the reason, I mean, like the majority of the people that I work with in the ER um, tend to prefer daytime shifts because they have families, they want to spend time with their children and stuff like that. And um, I totally get that. The evening shifts do suck. Like it kind of does throw off your circadian rhythm, but I preferentially work those shifts so that I can keep progressing as a climber. Um, it allows me to go to the gym when it's less busy, do my training, um, you know, put in maximal effort. And then you, what I usually do is I go home, take a nap and then uh, go to work and then kind of like go to sleep and rinse and repeat kind of thing. Um, so I mean, like it's, it is a little bit challenging, but um, just the flexibility of working in the ER has kind of allowed me to um, progress as a climber as well. And um, I guess like climbing and medicine are pretty, um, they're pretty demanding activities, <laughs> so to say. So finding a way to balance those two activities with my own personal life and my marriage and other friendships um, is always a challenge. And I don't know, like if you have any suggestions for me for like finding the best way to get like a good work-life balance, I'm all ears. <laughs> uh, what, what stands out to me there is how well that you can prioritize different things at different times, right? So it's not so much about trying to fill every cup equally but more about filling up one when it needs to be filled and maybe kind of leaving the others half full, quarter full, and then going back to top those up at a later date. Does that kind of seem like an accurate analogy? Yeah, yeah, I think that sounds like a great analogy. Um, yeah, because like, it, it, it's honestly, it's really impossible to like focus 100% on climbing, 100% medicine, 100% relationship all at once. Like something's got to give, right? Like um, time, uh, as you likely know, is like the most important aspect uh, or asset. Right? You can always get like money back if you lose it, but you can't get your time back. You can't really get recoup that energy that's been lost in a specific activity. So um, yeah, everything kind of 
ebbs and flows uh, based on the season, based on, you know, what kind of events are going on. But um, like, I guess I always approach things with <laughs> what I always call like an immigrant mindset. Like my parents worked so, so hard when I was growing up and um, just seeing their work ethic has really kind of played in on my work ethic in, in everything that I do. And um, I just try to put maximal effort in whatever I'm doing and kind of, uh, yeah, give it my all and see what comes out from it. Yeah, that definitely shines through clearly in, in hearing you talk about this and, and seeing how you've balanced your, your schedule over the last number of years. So to expand on, on that mindset, do you want to tell us a little bit about your mindset when it comes to high performance, when it comes to life itself, and maybe how that mindset has, has changed over the years or has it changed? Yeah, um, I'm... Yeah, I, I would say that uh, goal setting is a major factor that plays into uh, my drive. Um, I guess I'll, I'll talk a little bit about my approach to goal setting um, as a kind of offshoot of your question. Um, you know, every year you'll see people who, um, you know, as January 1st kind of approaches, they'll they'll say, they'll start with the outcome that they want to achieve, right? They, they say, I want to lose five pounds. And in order to lose five pounds, I'm going to change my behaviors. I'm going to run every day. And you'll see them run every single day throughout the month of January. They'll shed those five pounds. And then February 1st comes around and they'll stop running completely. And uh, they'll just fall off the wagon and kind of revert back to their regular lifestyle. Um, and I guess that's my issue with standard like new year's resolutions is that most of the changes that people make are not sustainable um my general approach to goal setting is a little bit different um and i feel like that kind of approach is a little bit backwards uh my approach is always starts with identity um so who do i see myself as who do i want to become um which impacts my behaviors which will ultimately impact my outcome um, so, uh, I kind of see myself as a rock climber, right? I, I want to be an overall good, uh, good, strong rock climber. And, um, whenever I'm shaping my behaviors, I always ask myself, you know, like, um, would a good, strong rock climber, uh, take this day off if you're feeling unmotivated Would this strong rock climber, um, you know, eat a full large size pizza by themselves probably not right um and i i still do use goal setting um uh but i kind of like frame it uh based on that identity and then kind of use uh, kind of like set my outcome goals afterwards and i guess like um there are multiple different approaches to goal setting uh, the one that i like to use is uh the smart uh, approach. So um, I guess SMART is an acronym that stands for uh, specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and time-bound. Um, and out of those five things, when you're setting a goal, I think the most important one is uh, the goal has to be relevant, right? So for me, uh, like my overall goals are, I want to be a, a, a solid like 514A sport climber. I want to be a solid V12 boulderer. And um, those are kind of the overarching goals. And I set smaller, uh, smaller bite-sized goals to actually get me to that point. But for me to say all of a sudden, oh, I, I'm setting a goal of running a marathon. Well, that, that goal actually isn't relevant at all and is not even important to me. So if I set that goal, like I'm not going to stick to like running every day because it's just not important to me, right? Um, so everything kind of has to be related to that overarching identity and kind of play back to that. And I think that the drive and the motivation to keep up with training and all those other things do kind of fall in line if you kind of approach things in that manner. It seems to me like you have a really clear idea of your identity and kind of who you identify as. Uh, I'm curious how you went about discovering that. How was that process? Or is that something that's uh, always been, been clear? <laughs> definitely not clear no uh it's definitely been an up and down process and i i do have to admit that um i i do suffer from 
imposter syndrome, even still to this day, it, it's really, it's always a challenge, right? Like, um, even as a physician, like I work in an academic center and I do research and quality improvements on, on the side. And um, I find it a challenge when I'm like presenting at a conference or giving a talk to residents. I, I often think to myself, you know, like, I don't know, do I have the creden credentials or the credibility to like speak on authority on this kind of thing? And like, as an athlete, like, you know, um, I've been super fortunate to be supported and sponsored by a few different companies. And like, you know, like the thought that often comes into my mind is like, why, I, I don't know, I feel like a sham because it's like, I'm not the best rock climber out there. Um, and yet I do have the support from these companies. And I guess like my, uh, the thoughts that I always come back to are, okay, like, again, coming back to that identity, right? Like, um, I don't want to be a sponsored athlete just because I'm decent at climbing and I'm balancing a career. I want to be sponsored because I am a good rock climber, you know? And in order to like, it, it's kind of like the fake it till you make it approach, right? Like in order to, um, you know, feel legitimate at that, I'm going to continue working hard and get to the point where I just feel like I'm not that imposter. <laughs> yeah, I'm you're not sure if that answers your questions or if I'm just rambling. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it does. It does for sure. Your your drive is is always so clear when, whenever we chat about this stuff, and I think it's really apparent during that uh, during that conversation there. Okay, awesome. So we talked a little bit about mindset. Very often in in sports psychology, we'll split uh, the field into mindset and skill set. Um, so thinking on either for performance or for medicine or for life outside of that, are there any particular skills or strategies or tools uh, that you use psychologically to kind of help your performance or your well-being? Yeah, I think for performance, um, one of the skills that I use um, most frequently is visualization. And that was like super popularized in that Adam Andra uh, video where he's like, just doing all these like crazy moves on the ground. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, like I, I don't, I don't do kind of like exaggerated moves like that, uh, where I'm like visualizing the the movement. But uh, you know, in both climbing and medicine, I do use that technique. Um, so when I was training to be uh, an emergency room specialist, um, we have to visualize uh, doing different surgical procedures and uh, you know managing uh, the most critically ill patients so that when those patients do come in, you're able to execute. I mean, like medicine truly is a high performance sport, right? And the margin for error is so low, the stakes are so high, you do not wanna screw up because patient, someone's life is on the line, right? Um, and so uh, uh, just, maybe I'll just give you an example of how I use visualization in medicine. So um, one of the, a surgical technique that we have to prepare for is uh, surgical cricothyronomy, for example, right? Like that's a, that's a procedure that you'll sometimes see in the movies where like someone has an allergic reaction and they have like tongue swelling and they can't breathe. And someone like in a cafeteria will like grab a knife and a, a big pen and like stab them in the throat and like help them breathe through their thing. I mean, like, it's a bit exaggerated, but it's actually not all that far-fetched. Like, that actually is a possible way to save someone's life. But the way that we would approach it in the emergency room is, um, you know, just I'll, I'll talk you through my technique. Like, I would stand at the patient's bedside on the right side of their body. I would uh, stabilize their trachea with my middle finger and thumb and then feel for the cricothyroid membrane with my index finger. Would use an 11-blade scalpel blade, make a three to five centimeter incision vertically in the midline, and then use a stab incision horizontally to create a hole into their trachea, insert my finger in the stoma or the hole, and then use a gum bougie, slide that along my finger and feel for the vibrations as it kind of ripples along the tracheal rings to ensure that I'm in the correct position. And then after I'm in that correct position, I would remove my finger use a 6-0 endotracheal tube, feed that down until the balloon is no longer visible, inflate the balloon, start bagging them through that, that endotracheal tube, and then confirm using endotidal CO2. So like, that's like a standard way that I would uh, kind of like verbalize and mentally walk myself through um, performing that surgical procedure. 
And um, as you'll probably notice, there are a lot of fine details, right? Like the way that I'm like actually feeling for the softness of the cricothyroid membrane, the way that I'm actually feeling for the vibrations. And uh, it's very similar in bouldering. Like um, when I'm like visualizing uh, a, a boulder project that I'm working on, I'm walking, verbally walking myself through of how I'm actually going to catch a hold and actually how the crystals are supposed to feel on which, uh, which pads and, you know, um, you know, I'll latch it with this hand, the crystal has to be on this middle finger. And as soon as it's there, then I'll actually move it into a half crimp and then shift my body. So, um, yeah, like I, I don't kind of walk, actually perform the movements, but I'll verbalize how I'm, um, how I'm supposed to do it. And that kind of, kind of mentally, uh, helps me visualize how I'm supposed to perform the movements. And it sounds to me, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it sounds pretty multi-sensory as far as a visualization or an imagery process is. So you're integrating not just the steps of what's happening, but you mentioned the vibrations to what you might feel on your hand, uh, kind of what you're hearing or what you're, what you're seeing around you too. Is that kind of accurate? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, like a visualization as a technique is most powerful when you use all five of your senses, right? Like even proprioception, like, especially for bouldering, like um, when I'm doing a hard boulder project, you have to think about like how your hips are positioned, like um, the angles that your, your body is, uh, is in to actually execute those harder moves when there's a lot of body tension. So yeah, I totally agree with that. And thank you for sharing that with us. I think that's a really, just a really interesting crossover between two high performance worlds that you're involved in, uh, one of which we maybe don't often view as being necessarily high performance in the medical field, but those situations are, are clearly such high stress and uh, there's so much precision involved that preparing to perform in that realm is, you know, more important, if anything, than preparing to perform on the boulders. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess like, that's one of the reasons why I love climbing is like, I mean, climbing is a high performance sport, but you're allowed to fail, you know, you can like, you can siege a boulder project or a sport climbing project for ages and keep falling. And there's like no consequence unless you get injured. But, um, you know, it, it is kind of refreshing to be able to do something and like, I don't know, just be super introspective, focus on yourself and, um, really like try to reflect on what your own weaknesses are and kind of overcome them um, and be okay with failing. Like that's, sometimes that's very refreshing, you know? In medicine, you don't really get that often. How do you find that changes around your learning process in medicine? You you mentioned kind of the, the higher rate of failure, obviously with climbing and bouldering in particular. Do you feel like that kind of informs the learning process as a boulderer? Is that different in the medical field for you? Yeah, I think uh, my approach to learning in medicine um, is a little bit different from my learning process in climbing. Um, so after every shift, I do reflect on the patients that I've seen. After every shift, I have a, a printout of the list of patients that I've seen. And um, I kind of just sit down, look at the case that I saw and um, just think about like, I always ask myself three questions. What went well? What didn't go so well? What can I do better for next time? Um, and you know, if there's a case that I think I could have managed better, it's really important to like actually dissect like why didn't it go perfectly and uh, how can you improve, I guess, your general approach and the systems that you're using to prevent that from happening in the future. Um, I think another thing that uh, as a, a general rule for myself in medicine is um, I guess if you are not growing, and this this actually applies to everything in life it, from my perspective. If you're not growing, you're probably receding. Um, and so some people um, will go into work, uh, whether it be in medicine or whatever they do, if you're an accountant or whatever, right? You go into work and you just think to yourself, oh, like I get, you know, as I get, go into work, I'm probably getting more experience and probably becoming better. But I don't think that that's necessarily the case. Really, if you want to get better, you have to be pretty intentional about it. And in medicine, what that means is like, um, you know, you need to be engaged in 
um, you know, teaching. I think teaching is really the, the most important way to get better because in order to teach someone a skill or some knowledge, you have to be really well versed in it, you know. Um, the other thing is, um, yeah, like giving back to the community. So in, in medicine, um, I try to give back to the medical community through quality improvement and uh, research projects that I work on. And in medicine, I, I do think that it's really important to give back to the community as well through, you know, uh, community events and the charities um, and also mentorship, uh, which is, I fear is like one of the biggest things that's being lost in this current era of climbing where the popularity is just exploding and it's getting into the mainstream. Um, so just kind of coming back to your question, uh, my overall approach for improving medicine is uh, acknowledging that I can't be passive about my improvement. I have to be very intentional about it and uh, do all of these other things if I actually want to be uh, the best possible physician and realize my potential in that realm. That's great. Thank you for sharing that with us. I'm sure that's, um, that's taken a lot of introspection over the years of your career and your training before that. Yeah, absolutely. So, and we, we touched on one there, but how about habits and routines? Is there anything that's been a real game changer for you? And, and if it has, how have you gone about developing, developing those habits? My habits and routines are usually designed at overcoming weaknesses. Um, I, I think I've always really known that, uh, my weaknesses are finger and crimp strength. Um, uh, sorry, talking about climbing again, right? <laughs> so finger and crimp strength and, uh, flexibility. Um, those are two of my all time weaknesses. And, um, back in November, uh, I started doing this 30 by 30 challenge where I just like try to exercise for, or exercise or move for 30 minutes every single day for 30 days straight. And then I extended it into December and now we're like at the end of February and I'm still doing it. So I have pretty much been exercising every single day since November 1st, uh, which has been really good. Um, I guess the thing that's kind of helped me to do that is like, I always do it with friends and we keep a spreadsheet to kind of see what other people are doing and keep each other motivated. Uh, but coming back to like my weaknesses, um, I've been stretching every day since November as well. So like, uh, first thing that I've been doing as I, uh, when I wake up, like when I'm brewing coffee and making, uh, my breakfast is I do 10 minutes of stretching. Uh, it's like just full body stretching, uh, most focus on the hips since I know that that's a source of tightness. And then directly after all of my workouts, I, uh, specifically do a 30 minute stretch session um, most focus on hip mobility again. And I did, um, a lattice training assessment. Uh, this is, I think just a, a month ago, and I was pretty surprised to see that my mobility scores were quote unquote, excellent. I was like, I never ever thought that my mobility would be considered excellent. And, you know, when I actually compare photos of me doing like box splits, um, at the beginning of November, when I started stretching and box splits now, like, man, the, the difference is marked. It's, it's really, really changed. And I feel like that's been a pretty, um, really big improvement for me. Um, so yeah, just starting small, um, kind of using your friends to, to motivate you and ride on their site as well. And just, uh, just being committed, uh, knowing that what you do is important and will ultimately pay off is important. I, I love the connection you made there to like accountability and support and how having others who are going through a similar journey or trying to build similar habits can be so beneficial to uh, developing your own habits and routines. And it, it sounds like the stretching has been paying off. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I kind of to like add on your... Um, add on to what you're saying about accountability and support. I mean, like one of the biggest uh, or the most important pieces of advice is, uh, advice that I was given when I was uh, kind of in my adolescent is you take like the five people that you spend the most time with and you take the average of all of them and that's you. And it's like, I hold so much truth, you know, like um, uh, both for like personality, temperament um, and, you know, for and climbing, like, how well you're performing and the habits that you're doing really just think about the five people that you're spending the most time with. If they're lazy, 
unmotivated, make excuses, you're going to be doing the exact same thing. But if you're always training with people that are just gunning hard to push their limits, um, people who are training every day, um, who are just absolutely psyched and motivated, um, you're going to adopt those, uh, those behaviors as well. And, um, you know, kind of like it, it helps you improve. So I actually think that's a perfect segue into a question I wanted to ask you next here. And obviously you've been on quite a long journey within climbing and within medicine. And I'm curious, is there anyone that's really inspired you along the way? And and then if so, kind of what have you learned from them or, or what did they teach you? I would say that in climbing media, um, like mainstream climbing media, and even social media, there was an overrepresentation of the dirtbag climber or the full-time or pro climber. Um, and as much as it's super inspiring for me to see people like pushing the limits of the sport, um, I think I'm more inspired by people who um, are, you know, juggling other responsible uh, responsibilities in life and still pushing their own personal limits in climbing. Like for me, that's more inspiring because that's what I can relate to, right? Like I've never known climbing as a full-time climber or as a dirt bay. I've only ever known climbing when I've been trying to juggle it with all of my, you know, my career and, you know, my own personal life. Um, one of the guys that's inspired me the most is uh, my friend, Tony Chan. He's really acted as a mentor to me throughout my climbing career when I, I moved to Vancouver and um, he's he just turned 50 this past January and he's still climbing mid 513s uh, sport routes he's still I think uh, we went on a trip to Bishop um, not this past uh, January but the previous January so one year ago and he sent V10 and Bishop um, He's just like an all around really phenomenal climber. And I think he's got a great approach to life. He's worked super hard to get to where he was in his career and he's retired early. And now he gets to like focus on climbing and his like, yeah, passion and just like traveling the world and, um, you know, yeah, pursuing climbing. Like, I, I just feel like that is such a great approach to life. And um, it's something that I really want to emulate in my own life as well. Like, I don't want to be... Uh, so focused on career. I don't want to just keep climbing this like career ladder and then find out when I'm on my deathbed that I miss out on so many opportunities to go travel and meet different people from different cultures and like climb rad things, you know, like I want to be able to kind of do the same, same kind of approach, like climb, uh, work super hard, um, get to, you know, an established position where I can devote more time to climbing and, um, just like really pursue that to the fullest. Yeah. Thank you for sharing those learnings with us. I think I mentioned to you off air the other day that Tony's someone I'd be really interested in chatting to for this project, because I, I agree he has such a measured approach to life and, and boy, can that guy sport climb phenomenal sport yeah. climber. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Like we have so many different, <laughs> different nicknames from like slow-mo tones. It's like one of the main ones. Cause he just like climbs like pure sloth, but he's so controlled and like his technique and tension is just off the charts, you know? So how about, how about advice along the way? Has anyone offered you a particularly great bit of advice or, or an insight that you'd like to share with us or anything you've, you've heard? Yeah, I think, um, Apart from the, the one that I shared earlier about, uh, you know, thinking about the people that you spend the most time with, I think um, another piece of advice that really stood out to me was advice that was given to me um, from my vice principal when I was uh, getting suspended in high school. <laughs> I won't go into that oh. story, but she said to me, um, you know, reputation is so important and at that time like I, I didn't really care what people thought about me and she was saying you know like you might not care about that but reputation is really uh, the measuring stick that people measure you by you know um, and I think that really stuck with me and um, you know now I'm like 35 years old and you know I, I want to act as a role model for some of the younger climbers or people that are like uh, younger doctors who are trying to um, 
you know, pursue things other than just being a, a single track doctor kind of thing, you know? Um, and with that, I, you know, I have to focus on everything else that I'm doing in life. Um, cause I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to propagate like bad behaviors or, um, I want to be a nice person. I want to act as a mentor for younger people. So, um, I think that's something that's really stuck with me. Yeah, that really stands out, I think, in, in how you approach both your career within climbing and your career within medicine, too. And uh, that would have been a great tell us something you don't know story. I'm, I'm sure I'll ask you about it another time. <laughs> <laughs> so how about your younger self? Thinking back, even maybe to your teenage years, your early 20s, you started climbing during university, right? So maybe even when you started climbing. Is there any advice you'd offer a younger Jeff, knowing what you know now? Yeah, I started climbing when I was 25 years old, which is like super late for a climber. Uh, so like now 10 and a half years later, I'm 35 and learned a lot along the way. I've thought a lot about if I would have wanted to start climbing a lot younger, like as an, as an adolescent or teenager. Um, and I'm not really sure about that. Like, uh, I thought a lot, oh, like what I tell my younger self, you know, get into climbing when, when you're like super young. I don't know. Like, I just feel like if I was a climber when I was a teen or teenager, just knowing my personality, when I do something, I really like, really want to do it hard, go hard, you know? Uh, and I feel like maybe if I was a climber, I wouldn't have pursued like medicine and kind of uh, experienced so many of the other things that I've experienced in this world. So, um, I'm not sure if I would want to start climbing younger, but I would say, um, I mean, like, like my dad always told me growing up, um, you know, it doesn't matter what you do as like the most important thing is that you're a nice person, you know, uh, like it doesn't matter if you're a doctor or you, um, uh, you know, clean garbage on the street or do whatever, you know, you have to be nice to other people. And I think that's something that's really stuck with me as well. Like, um, I, I would just kind of emphasize that to myself and, you know, I don't want to be a dick to anyone and I want to always be supportive of other people. You know? Totally. And it seems like a recurring theme throughout, throughout these conversations, right? Like connecting those threads together. It, it seems like that, that really flows throughout the conversation. Mm -hmm. So what's the future look like? Do you have any projects coming up? Any big plans? Uh, any kind of life changes? If you're thinking kind of in the coming years or, or the next decade? Yeah, I think for climbing, I kind of alluded to this um, earlier, but I do have uh, a couple set goals. Um, so I really want to be a solid 514 climber in sport climbing, a solid V12 climber uh, in bouldering. Um, some people, you know, interpret that as grade chasing. I don't really interpret that as grade chasing. Cause like I, I, when I hear about grade chasing, like I really think of someone like, I want to send one V12 and then like automatically consider themselves, oh, I'm a V12 climber, which is not like what I'm really doing. Like I want to, I have like a few different projects in mind, like uh, two different, uh, or sorry, three different V12 boulders that I'm hopefully going to tick off this season and then two 514 sport projects that are in different styles. And um, I think like setting those goals kind of drives me to become a more well-rounded climber. Um, so those are kind of like what I have, you know, hopefully planned for this year. Um, in terms of like my personal life, um, you know, I think I think I do want to start a family in the near future. And I think that would, that would really introduce a lot of complexity as well. Like having to not only juggle my marriage, climbing and medicine, but also juggling a, a family. I think that would, yeah, be a big challenge, but I think I'd be up for that challenge. And, um, I just love that idea of like mentoring a, a young human parasite through this world and like teaching them the things that I've, uh, learned the hard way. Um, so that's something that I'm kind of looking towards in the next, like, you know, next one to five years. Um, and in medicine, I really want to, 
I don't want to just be a clinician, you know, I want to be an academic, I want to contribute to the, the wealth of knowledge that we have in medicine and really improve patient care, not just for the patients that I'm seeing in the ER, but overall. And my main uh, projects have been to improve the care for patients that are critically ill and require life support. So, um, you know, the current project that I'm working on, um, uh, kind of, I collect data from three different hospitals in downtown Vancouver, and I really want to expand this into a true provincial database where we can kind of lead different projects. And uh, that's something that I'm looking forward to in the future. So, yeah, I guess like from the three prongs of my life, medicine, climbing in and personal, those are kind of the things that I'm looking towards. Sounds like a lot of upcoming challenges as well. It's a really exciting set of plans. Yeah, and I'm up for those challenges. I, I love uh, I love pushing myself and kind of seeing, um, you know, if I can fulfill my biggest potential and yeah. So we mentioned a little bit around kind of your support system and, and who you surround yourself with and, and your partner and, and people you train with. Um, but what does that support system look like? Do you want to kind of give us an overview of that and, you know, shout out anyone, anyone that needs shouting out? Yeah. Um, so I would say my biggest support system is my wife, Chelsea. Um, she's like my best friend. Um, I do feel like I can confide in her and um, any kind of ambitions that I have. She's always been uh, incredibly supportive. And um one question that I often receive is, is she a climber? No, she's not a climber. Um, but, you know, like not all friendships and relationships have to be activity based. And I think that's a fallacy that uh, climbers often fall into is like, if you're a hardcore climber, you have to be able to, you, like, you have to date or marry a climber because they'll, that's the only way that they'll understand this passion and the drive behind it. But that's not the case. And um, I think that uh, being married to a non-climber really does offer so much variety in the activities that we do. Like, for example, this year, uh, both of us are learning to ski together, which has been like so much fun. And it's a, it's a great way to kind of like divert the attention from like hardcore tri uh, training and being in the gym all the time and pushing towards those goals and just like be on the mountains and have fun together and like kind of just, yeah, have a good time um, with someone that you love and um, your best friend, you know? So I would say that Chelsea is like the main support system. Um, uh, in terms of training for climbing, uh, my biggest support system uh, is a group of friends that we have, um, uh, climbers that uh, are like very, very focused on training and pushing themselves. Uh, so like a couple of those guys that, um, are really close with or Ivan Lowe, who's a comp climber, Graham McGrenner, um, uh, sorry, what, Jake Sharfman, and also Andrew Funk. These guys, um, I really like respect. Um, I, I really like them as human beings, as their like personalities and their overall approach to life. And the bonus is that they're all super talented climbers and really pushing themselves to the next level. Um, that's something that's really kept me motivated, especially over this past training season. And um, I think this upcoming year, hopefully we can all get some pretty cool sends and have some cool adventures together. So that's been really cool. Yeah, th thank you for that oversight. It's, um, yeah, it's so insightful to hear from so many of my guests about uh, how their partnership and their romantic life has really been a compliment to, to their time spent in, in training or their careers. And I think that's something that we can all learn from. Yeah, absolutely. So Jeff, we're kind of running running towards the end of time here, but have you got kind of a number one takeaway for our audience? Any final uh, bit of advice you want to leave us with? Final bit of advice. Um, I don't know. I don't consider myself as the, the wisest person out there, but um, I would say if you want to go for something, go for it. Don't make excuses. Um, you know, try your hardest. And if you try your hardest and don't reach your ultimate goal or your ultimate potential, you can like live without regrets and know that you put everything into it. And along those way, you would have learned so many different things. You, you would have overcome so many challenges and learned a lot about yourself. Um, so yeah, I would say just, just go for it.
Fantastic. Again, thank you for thank you for sharing that with us. So where can people connect with you? Kind of uh I guess two part question. Where can they connect with you? Where can they connect with people that support you? I, I know you have a couple of sponsors and and where can they follow along your journey as well as connecting with those organizations? Yeah, thanks for mentioning that. I, I should probably stop and thank my sponsors. Yeah. So uh, first of all, like La Sportiva North America has been um a huge, huge support. And I just love how, um, you know, the people that they're supporting are very diverse. Uh, they are supporting so many uh, different people of color and advocates for uh, different causes. And I think that that is just so, it speaks to the overall um, ethic and ethos of that company. Um, so yeah, I, I love their shoes as well, which is their shoes and all their gear. Um, so big shout out to La Sportiva North America. Um, the Hive Climbing has been a huge supporter for so many years. Um, I, it really has acted as a main focal point in the uh, the British Columbia climbing community. Um, and I'm incredibly thankful for the friendships and the relationships that I've formed through uh, the Hive Climbing Gym. Um, digit Climbing, uh, Tembo Climbing, which is a, a chalk company based out of Squamish. Um, and uh, most recently, I, I, I've um, I discovered like Kaya Climbing, which is uh, the new app based, um, I guess, it's like a, a way to like send, uh, log your sends and stuff. So I, I just started using that and I've been kind of in touch with that that company and I just love that that platform. So really excited to continue working with all five of those companies. Um, and uh, where can people connect with me? Yeah, if anyone wants to connect with me, just shoot me a message on Instagram, give me a follow and um, kind of see what I'm up to in terms of training and climbing and I guess medicine, yeah. And your handle on Instagram is Dr. Jeff Clemens. That's right, D-R-J-E-F-F Clemens, yeah. Perfect, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. I've, I've loved getting to know a little bit more about you, hearing some of these insights and what really stands out to me is all the parallels between performance in the medical world and performance in the athletic world. I think that's something that we can all uh, reflect on and learn a little bit from. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's been super fun. And um, I think what you're doing is absolutely amazing. Like, uh, it's so cool that you're kind of leveraging your skills as kind of like a sports psychologist and mental performance uh, coach uh, and kind of bringing it to something that we're also passionate about so yeah thanks so much for um doing this podcast it's awesome thank you for joining me in that conversation with jeff you i find that jeff's enthusiasm is contagious and it's so inspirational to me how he manages to juggle medicine climbing and his personal life at such a high level i loved hearing jeff talk about some of the skills and strategies that he uses to enhance his performance and also his mindset and his approach to life in general. If you enjoyed this content and you want to see more like it, then please take the time to give this video a like, subscribe to the channel, and share this video with anyone who might be interested in learning more. I'm Andre Manzouk, and you've been watching Mountain Mindset. Until next time.